Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from New York. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me is Susanna Schellenberg, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Rutgers University, and she's here to discuss perceptual particularity. Susanna Schellenberg, welcome. Thanks, Matt. I'm very glad to be here. So I guess uh, one interesting question we can begin with is, what is sense experience? And I think a very common idea to have about what sense experience is, is it's something like a movie playing in your head. A lot of philosophers, especially in the 20th century, have raised problems for that idea of what sense experience is. What are some of the problems with that idea? Because it seems pretty intuitive. Yeah, so that's a very old idea, and it's one that in a certain way is still quite um, wildly held. So, for example, you know, most people have the intuition when you perceive, say, a water bottle, we have one here on our desk, um, then your perceptual state, you know, your state of perceiving that water bottle, and you are being aware of that water bottle, has something to do or is in some way prompted by that water bottle. You have some sensory input and you represent something, there's some, you know, processing going on and you end up being phenomenally aware or sensorily aware of the water bottle. But now the problem, of course, is that sometimes we hallucinate. So I'm, when, I, when I talk about hallucination, I mean the case when it seems to you that there is a bottle where, in fact, there is no such bottle. And, you know, in the extreme case, that hallucination could be subjectively indistinguishable from the perception. And so if that's right, then, of course, in the hallucination case, it couldn't be that the hallucination is constituted by the water bottle on the table, because there isn't a water bottle on the table in that case, right? It just seems to you that there is a water bottle. And now people infer all sorts of things from that. And one thing they infer is that in the case of hallucination, what you're directly aware of obviously can't be the water bottle, so it must be something else. And one thing people used to think is that it's a sense data, you know, some strange particular floating in front of your eyes. Others have thought it's... Um, intentional object, that is, some object that you posit exists in the environment, even though it might not actually exist in the environment. Or more recently, qualia, that is, again, some kind of strange um, particular that constitutes your sensory state, your phenomenal state. Or even more recently, what you're directly aware of are phenomenal properties, that is, sort of the properties of your experience. And then, of course, people want to give a unified account of all sorts of experience, that is, of both perception and hallucination. And so then a typical move for people is to say that you're not just aware of these you know, strange particulars or abstract entities in the case of hallucination, but also in the case of perception. And so then, going back to the original case where you perceive the water bottle, it turns out your being aware of a water bottle doesn't seem to have anything to do anymore with the water bottle out in the world that you're causally related to. What you're aware of is just a matter of, 
you know, being aware of, you know, sense data or phenomenal properties or qualia or some representational state you're in, you know, some sort of properties you represent. Okay, right. So maybe uh, a worry you could you might have then about this idea that sense experience is just a thing in your head is that it becomes too detached, as it were, from reality, from the world outside your head. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that's the worry. And then to sort of elaborate a bit on why that's a worry, I mean, it's interesting that people working in epistemology, that is, you know, theories of how we know things or what evidence we have or theories of justification, and people who work in philosophy of language frequently assume that perception plays certain roles in grounding our knowledge in the world or grounding our language in the world. So, for example, um, almost everyone agrees we have thoughts about objects in our environment. You know, people call those singular thoughts. And a common assumption is that singular thoughts represent our environment in virtue of perception having content that directly represents the environment and not just, you know, general features of the environment, but actual objects in our environment. And similarly, in with regard to knowledge, you know, everyone agrees we have knowledge of objects in our environment. And one really good way to have knowledge of objects in our environment is via perception. And if we have knowledge of objects and environment via perception, then at least given certain assumptions about, you know, the nature of knowledge, it would seem that we have to, would have to represent particular objects we see in our environment to gain knowledge about them. And so if your view about phenomenal character or your view about, you know, the sensory character of your experience is that you are in those sensory states in virtue of being aware of you know, sense data, qualia, phenomenal properties, or abstract entities of some sort, then it's going to be really unclear how it is that perception can play the role of grounding knowledge or grounding language in the world. Yeah, so maybe to bring out this idea of grounding, um, what about the following example? So I can hear that there is a singer named Katy Perry through the media, and I can read about her, and so on and so forth. But there definitely seems to be the intuition that I'm not going to have the kind of real certain, like, absolutely firm knowledge that there is this person named Ketty Perry uh, that I would have if I were just right in front of her looking at her, talking to her. It seems like there's some kind of a difference between the sort of indirect knowledge we get from uh, reading and hearing about things and this direct knowledge we get by physically standing in front of something and viewing it. Is that what we have in mind when we're talking about perception, grounding, uh, our knowledge of uh, things in the world? And yeah, I mean, that's one thing. And of course, you know, it's a really complicated question to what extent you see Katy Perry when you see her on TV or whether you hear her when you hear her via the radio. We talk as if we do see her when we see her on TV and that we hear when we hear her on the radio. And the question is sort of how those sort of technological media sort of change how we talk about perception. But sort of the larger question here is, look, you know, perceptions of plays all sorts of roles in our lives. It brings about conscious mental states, you know, sensory states. It yields knowledge of our environment and justifies our beliefs about the environment. And it plays the role of converting variant retinal input into representations of invariant features that we attribute to our environment. 
And a lot of what I've been trying to do is to take those three different roles that perception plays in environment equally seriously. And a lot of the work has been, I mean, there's been a, a lot of interaction between the mind question, you know, how does perception bring about conscious mental states, and the sort of sciencey question, how does the perceptual system accomplish the feat of converting variant retinal input into representations of invariant features of our environment. But there's been relatively little interaction between those two sets of questions and the epistemology question. And, you know, my work to a large extent has been to sort of integrate and develop a unified account of perception that takes those various roles of perception equally seriously. Um, so to go back to your original point about sort of, how did you call it, the movie playing in your head view of perception. So if all you're interested in is the idea that perception brings about conscious mental states, then that view is quite plausible because it gives you a really neat and simple explanation of how it is that when we perceive or suffer a hallucination, how it is that we could be in the very same sensory state. Because such views can posit that what we're directly aware of isn't really the stuff out in the world when we perceive, but rather something else, some strange particular. And, you know, given that in hallucination, the thing we seem to be seeing isn't in fact present, you can, with that experience as a movie playing in your head style view, give a neat explanation of what perception and hallucination have in common. And what I've tried to argue um, in various papers is that perception and hallucinations and also you know, illusions, they do have a metaphysical substantial common factor. Namely, they all are a matter of employing the very same perceptual capacities. But there's also an uh, important difference between the various cases, because when you perceive, you successfully refer to or single out the very thing that you are perceptually related to. Whereas when you hallucinate, you fail to single out or refer to the very thing that it seems to you that you are perceptually related to, but you're not in fact perceptually related to. And the view of sensory character that I've developed is that being in a certain sensory character or being in a certain conscious mental state is simply a matter of employing these perceptual capacities. And that's quite a radical idea, the idea being that we should think about you know, the metaphysical structure of conscious mental states, not in terms of some awareness relation to something, be that, you know, the object in the world, or be that sense data, or be that a qualia, or be that a phenomenal property, but rather we should understand sensory states in terms of a mental activity, namely the employment of perceptual capacities. And when I talk about perceptual capacities, what I mean is just, you know, my capacity to see red which I employ when I see red, and which allows me to differentiate red from the surround colors, or similarly, my capacity to see you know, round things, which I employ when I see the rim of the water bottle in front of me. If you like, you can think of those capacities as concepts. Now, I'm very concerned to take seriously that perceptual experience is a very low-level mental capacity that we share with animals, who might not possess concepts. So I don't want to think of them in terms of concepts. I just think of them in terms of you know, sort of discriminatory capacities. But if you think of them in terms of concepts, you can easily see how it's unproblematic to think of perceptual capacities as things you might employ 
while failing to single out what you purport to single out. So, for example, you know, most people will say it's unproblematic to say that I can employ my concept horse while failing to refer to a horse because perhaps there's a cow there rather than a horse. I've still employed the concept horse. I was just unlucky. What I purported to refer to wasn't present, and so my concept remains empty. And I want to say the very same thing about perceptual capacities. In hallucination, I employ the very same capacities that I would employ would I be perceiving, but I employ them baselessly in the sense that I don't successfully single out anything in the environment. And in that sense, there's a difference between the perceptual case and the hallucinatory case. So if you and I are walking through the meadows and I say, uh, hey, look at that cute horse over there. And you're like, no, that's a cow. It's not like I don't know what a horse is or I, you know, I looked at it too quickly and like it was in the shadows and um, I didn't have my glasses on, whatever. Some weird thing happened. But I, of course, I know what a horse is. We're not going to say that I don't just because I misidentified one once. So I have the capacity to correctly use the concept horse in that case. So you want to say something similar about the perception case. So let's say I'm um, in typical philosophical faction, drinking a cup of coffee, and I take a sip from it and then I put it back down. And then not in typical philosophical fashion, I then drop some acid and my prankster roommate takes the cup away from me, let's say. But I'm hallucinating because I'm under the influence of uh, psychedelic drugs and I think that the cup is still there. What you want to say about that case is something similar to the horse case. Just as in the horse case, it's not like I don't know what a horse is because I mistook a cow for a horse. You want to say, yeah, here I'm employing the same capacity to perceive cups that I would be employing in the case where I'm not high on drugs. (laughs) It's just that that capacity is like misfiring or something in the hallucination case, but it's the same capacity. And that's why the two experiences seem the same to me, the case when there really was a cup there and the case when I was hallucinating a cup. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So I want to say, as in the horse case, the mistake isn't on the level of your capacities. Your capacities are all good, you know. And in a certain sense, it's not even on the level of you employing the capacities, you know. Just as in the perceptual case, you're employing the perceptual capacity to single out a cup when you hallucinate a cup, what goes wrong is that you fail to refer to a cup or you fail to single out a cup. And why does that go wrong? Well, because there's no cup there. And so the level at which the mistake happens is a failure of reference or a failure to successfully single out the object that you purport to single out. And in recent years, I've been exploiting this view about the sensory character, the phenomenal character of experience for a view about the epistemology of experience. The idea being that perceptual experience provides us with phenomenal evidence in virtue of how things seem to one, and additional fact of evidence in virtue of one successfully singling out things in our environment. So to explain that a bit, the question is, you know, why does perceptual experience provide us with evidence in the first place? And my answer to that question exploits the view about phenomenal character, sensory character that I talked about just before. So the idea being, look, in perceptual experience, we employ perceptual capacities, and these perceptual capacities have a particular metaphysical structure. And here are sort of a couple of important facts about them. First of all, 
there's a primacy of their employment and perception over you know, bad cases, cases of hallucination or illusion. And there's a primacy in that we can't explain what goes on in the hallucinatory case or the illusory case without appealing to what would go on were we perceiving. So, you know, say I hallucinate a green dragon, I'm employing my perceptual capacities that I would employ, would I be seeing a green dragon? But given that there's no green dragon there, I employ them baselessly. So I have to appeal to what I would be doing, would I be perceiving, in order to explain what is going on when I'm hallucinating. And you know, licensing this explanatory primacy of the perceptual case over the hallucinatory and illusory cases, there's a metaphysical primacy of what goes on in the perception case over these other bad cases, in that the capacities do function to do what they would be doing in the good case, in the perception case, even when they're employed in the bad case. And I then you know, use this primacy of the good over the bad case, primacy over the perceptual case, over the hallucinatory and illusory case, to show why it's rational to heed the testimony of one's senses. So it's rational to heed the testimony of one's senses because the perceptual capacities employed function to do what they do in the good case, basically, in a nutshell. And this view is obviously externalist in various ways, but not in a way that would lead you to a reliablist account. And that's a good thing because perceptual experience is not a particularly reliable faculty. And so, you know, while there are various modifications of reliabilism that sort of deal with that, this is sort of an externalist view that's an alternative to reliabilism and so avoids any kind of problems that you might have with reliabilist views. Okay, so when I actually see a real cup that's actually there and when I hallucinate a cup that's not there, we've gotten at what those two cases of experiencing something have in common. Namely, they're the exercise of the same capacity to perceive things. Presumably there's something different about them as well. So what's the difference between the uh, hallucination case and the normal case where you actually see the cup? Right. So the difference is that in the normal case, the perception case, you single out the cup. And then I want to say you are in a perceptual state that represents that very cup to which your perception is related to. Whereas in the hallucination case, you fail to single out any cup because there's no cup there. And then there are lots of ways of analyzing what exactly is represented. And what I want to say is that you are in a representational state that's gappy, where the gap just marks that there is a reference failure, that there's a failure to single out the cup. But as your question sort of brought out, what the upshot of this is, is that I'm sort of trying to satisfy both internalist and externalist intuitions and by doing so, steering a path between um, disjunctivist views, I mean, sort of, I reject sort of any disjunctivist view on the one hand, but also steering away from any view on which the representational content of perception or hallucination that are subjectively indistinguishable is exactly the same and purely general. And the way I steer a path between these options is to say that there is a metaphysically substantial common element between the perception case and the hallucination case, namely the perceptual capacities employed, and that yields a representational state. However, there is a difference with regard to the representation in that in the 
case of perception, we represent the very object, for example, the cup, we're perceptually related to. And in the case of hallucination, we fail to single out any particular object. And due to that, the representational state of hallucination is just structured by the perceptual capacities employed, and so is a gappy proposition. That view allows one to do justice to the idea that perceptual states are in an interesting way externalist. They're constituted by the very particulars, you know, objects, events, property instances to which we're perceptually related to when we perceive, while still being able to give a unified account of perceptual experience and explain, one, the nature of hallucination, but also explain what you know, how it is that a hallucination could be subjectively indistinguishable from our perception. You know, that's something that many people have problems with with regard to disjunctivism because people think they don't give a satisfactory account of hallucination. Of course, this is not a criticism that bothers any disjunctivists because disjunctivists want to give primacy to perception such that hallucination isn't really of the same natural kind, and they don't have the ambition to give any sort of unified account of perception hallucination. In fact, they have the ambition not to do that. So this is interesting. So my pre-acid dropping experience was of an actual cup. My post-acid dropping experience was... um, to me, exactly the same thing. It looked exactly the same. It looked like there was a cup there, but in fact, there was no cup there. Now, according to uh, the view you just expressed, those two experiences that I had, like objectively or something, they're different, even though to me personally, from my point of view, they seem exactly the same. That's the whole point. They're indistinguishable. That's why the hallucination is a hallucination. Isn't that kind of counterintuitive? I mean, don't we always know the way our own private personal experiences are? Yeah, okay, so yeah, that's an excellent question. And that kind of leads us back to where you started with, you know, the view that experience is a movie playing in your head. And, um, you know, so, I mean, again, if your, your sole concern is to explain the idea of that experience brings about conscious mental states, then it might be an okay view to say that your perceptual states are exactly alike. Your mental states are exactly alike when you're perceiving and hallucinating, at least when those two experiences are subjectively indistinguishable. Now, for various reasons, I think that's not a good view, even if that's your sole explanatory concern. But certainly, as soon as you want to explain the other roles of experience in our lives, it becomes a quite problematic view, right? Because if you want to explain how perception provides us with knowledge of our environment, and if you want to explain how perception, you know, brings about beliefs of particulars in our environment, then that view becomes quite problematic, and it becomes somewhat mysterious on such a view how perception could play those roles. So what I've been arguing is, and this is now going back to this idea about perceptual capacities, is that... Look, perception is fundamentally a matter of employing these perceptual capacities, which are essentially discriminatory capacities. And, you know, should you care about such matters, this is an idea that's very well based in vision science and cognitive science more generally. So if perception is fundamentally a matter of employing discriminatory capacities, so for example, my capacity to discriminate, you know, your voice from, you know, the noises outside, and therefore be able to hear what you're saying, then 
When I'm discriminating, there's a basis for my discriminating. I'm discriminating, you know, the sounds to which I'm perceptually related. And it depends which sound I'm perceptually related to. And if I'm not related to any sounds, but rather um, hallucinating, I'm in a certain respect in a similar mental state in that I'm still employing the same perceptual capacities, but I fail to in fact discriminate any particulars, any sounds in my environment. And so due to that, I want to say, you know, in contrast to the intuitive idea you laid out before, I want to say, no, the perceptual states, the mental states you're in when you're experiencing are not the same. Of course, there's some level of terminological debate here. Some people, when they say experience, they just mean how things seem to you. And of course, we can all agree that the world can seem exactly the same to you when you perceive and when you hallucinate. The question is whether that means that the mental state has to be exactly the same and whether the content of your mental state has to be exactly the same. And I argue, no, the the mental state is at least in part the same, it's in part different. And similarly, the content of your experience, um, what you represent, is in part different and in part the same. Right. So there's a real dilemma encapsulated in what we want to say about the contrast between the normal perception case and the hallucination case. If we want to say they're exactly the same, then we lose a grip on the role that perception plays in our lives and how we you know, come to know things by seeing them and hearing them. And if we go all the way in the other direction and say they're completely different, then it's just not clear what hallucination even is anymore. So if we go your middle way, what we get to do is we get to say, well, they're the same in the sense that the same capacity is being employed, but they're different in the sense that in the one case, your perceptual capacity is hooking onto an object. And in the hallucination case, your perceptual capacity is not hooking onto anything. That way we get to avoid either of those two extremes that each of which make sort of basic everyday phenomena like mysterious. Yeah, that's exactly right. Some philosophers take the position, sometimes called naive realism, according to which all there is to sense experience is a relation between a perceiver and a thing perceived. How does that view tie into what we've been talking about today? Is it an influence on you, or um, presumably you would disagree with it in certain aspects? Yeah, so people who have argued that we shouldn't think of perceptual experience as representational have really pushed representationalists like myself to be much clearer about what we even mean with representational content, and that's a very good thing because I believe people have been in the past quite unclear about what this idea is that perceptual experience represents the environment as being a certain way. But I think the view um, is, while appealing in all sorts of ways, ultimately not that convincing. I mean, to first say how it's appealing, one way it's very appealing is that they have argued that we shouldn't think of sensory character or phenomenal character as constituted by awareness relations to, you know, strange particulars such as sensata or qualia or phenomenal properties, or for that matter, as grounded in representational content, but rather have argued that we should think of sensory character or phenomenal character as simply constituted by the very layout of one's environment. You know, so I'm aware of something green because there is a green object right in front of me that constitutes my sensory state. But now, against that view, I would argue a couple of things. One is that there's no such thing as just being brutally acquainted with 
some green object. Whenever you are perceptually related to something, you're always discriminating. You're always engaging in a certain mental activity by means of which you are aware of that thing. And once you've brought the idea into play that whenever you're perceiving, you're engaging in a certain discriminatory activity that allows you to be aware of your environment. So once you've brought in this level of perceptual capacities, you've already brought in the idea that experience has representational content for the following reasons. So these perceptual capacities are employable and reemployable in different environments. And moreover, you can employ them successfully and single out something, or you can employ them unsuccessfully and fail to single out anything or single out the wrong thing, you know, because you're misled or something. And so that already suggests that they have all the hallmarks of content. They are repeatable. They um, constitute mental states that are either accurate with regard to the environment or fail to be accurate with regard to the environment. And so then it becomes somewhat of a terminological issue whether you're then talking about those mental states as having content or not. And so in that sense, um, to wrap that up, I would want to say that I very much appreciate the way naive realists have pushed against representationalists and showed how, for one thing, you can develop a view about perceptual experience that at least on the surface seems to do away with any notion of content and thereby really, as I see it, push the question of at what point we actually need the notion of content and at what point we sort of can't do without talking about content. And I've shown one such point, and you know, there are various other issues that can be appealed to. So for example, we remember our experiences, and one very plausible account of how it is that we remember some experience from the past is that we reconstruct content we represented at a previous occasion. And if you think of perceptual experience as not being representational, it becomes um, very complicated to explain how it is that we can remember experiences. Susanna Schellenberg, I certainly hope that I haven't been hallucinating this interview because I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Well, thank you too, Matt. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always... You can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Listening.